This is a Federal News Network podcast. In the child's book, Pat the Bunny, Paul and Judy could do many things. Well, the General Services Administration can and does do many things, including provide most of the federal government with office space and other real estate. For a look at GSA's current real estate priorities and the space you'll be working in for the next few years, we turn to the new commissioner of the Federal Buildings Service, Nina Albert. Ms. Albert, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom, for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. And you do have experience in public real estate, in a sense, having been at Metro. And it must be just amazing to arrive at the GSA and see something that is national in scope plus a thousand times bigger. I was going to say, I've been um, practicing and been in the business of public real estate for over 10 years, uh, actually probably more than that, before joining um, GSA. And there is no comparison. Uh, The federal real estate portfolio is among the most diverse and certainly the broadest all over the country. We have uh, office buildings and warehouses and land ports of entry and courthouses. It's just fascinating to learn about, and I'm super excited to be here. And the top question seems to be, and I presume this is a priority for the building service, and that is, how much space will the government actually need in the post-COVID era? I don't think anyone knows for sure what percentage of people will be eventually in offices, whether business or government. But how are you thinking about that, and what are some of the plans going on to try to figure it out? Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. Nobody exactly knows. So how we're approaching this is really as a process. Uh, The very first thing, and we have been doing this for the past year or so, is listening to our agency partners. You know, what are they seeing on the ground? What does leadership need, um, you know, from uh, office, from uh, technology, how the two blend together. Um, These are things that we've uh, been working with our um, agency customers uh, for over the past year. We assembled more than 100 experts from 18 different agencies to identify and create the principles for the future of work. And that's resulted in an an initiative that we're calling Workspace 2030. And um, we have incorporated and been able to incorporate lessons learned already. And that includes and assumes that the future of work will be a combination of office-based work and work from home. Um, So what GSA is looking to do is package uh, real estate and technology solutions so it's easier for agencies to select what model works best for them. So now what, right? Like exactly what is uh, the federal footprint look like in the future? Uh, again, it's not going to be it's not going to be a process that's targeting a certain footprint footprint shrinkage. Instead, it's learning over the next year, putting into place systems that help us understand how many people are in a given in a building at any given time. Uh, tracking what federal agencies are going to be doing with their lease space. As it turns out, about 60% of federal leases are coming due in the next five years. So we'll have a very good idea in the near future what agencies, uh, what decisions they're going to be making um, about renewing their leases. I will just say, as a general rule, we would like to use any consolidation of space to favor reuse of federally owned facilities rather than to lease new space. Um, This will require an investment in our existing facilities to ensure that they're modernized and meet the needs of agencies. Uh, But ultimately, 
we believe that investing in federal facilities over leasing saves the federal government and American taxpayers money. So I haven't totally and immediately addressed your question and what I think is everybody's question about how much space exactly, you know, is uh, the federal footprint going to shrink or what exactly is the blend of uh, work from home and work from the office going to look like. Instead, I think what we're aiming toward is to the extent possible, come reoccupy uh, existing owned space. Also in the future, we want to provide employees with as much access, as much flexibility, convenience, and amenity as possible, because that's what workers are really looking for. And you might have to change a few skyline engravings and maybe a few of those ugly 70s brown signs. I'm thinking of the example of the Army Corps of Engineers, a big piece of the Army, lots of employees. They are in the same building that says Government Accountability Office on the outside. So you've got a big military executive branch agency inside a congressional agency office. And so maybe it should also say GAO and Army Corps of Engineers. But that's the kind of thing you're thinking of is get people under the federally owned space to the extent that you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll uh, give a great example. Um, GSA itself used to occupy a building in at L'Enfant Plaza in the heart of Washington, D.C. Uh, we ourselves have consolidated uh, our own space. And so um, the occupants of that building at L'Enfant Plaza have moved over uh, into 1800 F Street, which is in another part of downtown D.C. And now uh, the building that GSA used to occupy is going to be renovated and the Department of Homeland Security is going to be coming in there and repurposing it. So it's those kinds of movements that allow us to really maximize the real estate assets that we currently own. And of course, GSA used to be the Interior Department a long time ago, so this is an ongoing <laughs> process. And in this Workspace 2030 initiative, does that also include looking at what is inside buildings? And I'll make an analogy back in the, I believe it was the Clinton administration, the GSA had a whole display set up showing possible configurations of really modern work cubicles. And they were pretty cool. And that was the era when it wasn't assumed everyone necessarily had a PC on their desk as it is today. And looking at the idea of hoteling, of people sometimes teleworking, sometimes not, some of the models are getting a little long in tooth for how you hotel people. So is looking at new modes of the interior part of this Workspace 2030? Absolutely. Actually, Workspace 2030 is uh, very uh, space solutions oriented. So, um, and, and I would say that different than maybe kind of a former model when everybody was really thinking about how office space was designed and thinking about, you know, how, how many cubicles, how many offices, is it open office? I mean, that was the discussion that we've been having for the past 10 years. I think looking forward, what uh, people are going to be really looking um, looking at is what is the how do space and technology interact, right? If a portion of your team is working from home and another portion is in the office and you all want to have a conference call uh, today, um, you know, the tech, there, there need to be people who are in the conference room, are interacting with each other and the people who are working from home uh, need to still feel connected and a part of that group. And how does technology enable you to do that and have really a seamless connection uh, and experience, regardless of whether you're from home uh, or physically in the office? Um, so it's those types of qualities of connection that we're looking at, uh, both virtual, physical, um, 
and as for the proportion of you know workstations versus versus offices i think that slowly that conversation is going to change quite a bit because of exactly what you just said there are people who are going to be working a portion of time in the office during a week um, a portion of time at home uh, it could even be a very different model than that where people are only coming in for certain types of meetings um, so you might have a surge of people all at once and how do you have office space that accommodates a whole variety of uses for the exact same space. So um, yeah, Workspace 2030 considers all of those types of things. But the key, uh, I would say, part of the conversation right now is how do we really get a package of real estate space plus technology that allows for a, a variety of different work modes um, that will fit a variety of different agency and employee needs. And a lot of the federal-owned real estate is aging or is old, actually, but yet some of it is also historic because Absolutely. You know, GSA hired some of the top architects of a given era to design different stages of buildings, even the brutalist. That, that was a famous architect. So do you also envision trying to maybe exact from Congress ways of really renovating some of the older shells so that the architecture is preserved, but the interior really meets 21st century needs? I don't know how you know so much about uh, the federal portfolio. It's very impressive. Um, 30% of uh, federally owned assets are historic buildings, or I should say office buildings are, are historic. And so you're right, it presents uh, a challenge um, in terms of modernizing those facilities. So yeah, I mean, in order to make these kind of what I call bigger bigger muscle movements, that is reducing that least, not with a T, but an ED at the end, footprint and moving folks and repurposing uh, our existing facilities. Um, yeah, that will take um, an investment. Uh, and and when we talk about modernization, there's, you know, a couple different levels of modernization that we're talking about. One is, as we've, you know, is just the repurposing of space, making sure that it's well-suited for the technology needs that the current workforce has, but it also means uh, retrofitting these buildings so that they are um, as sustainable as possible. We have a goal of having net zero buildings for every uh, major renovation or new construction project. And um, that's really important and also um, challenging to do in uh, historic buildings, uh, but we have a track record of doing it, and that's what we'd like to see more of. Um, and then the third thing I was going to say is just making sure that all of our buildings are designed for accessibility of a wide variety of different customers and occupants. Um, and so it's not just ADA, it's also for visitors to be able to come and feel welcome in federal buildings. Um, it's allowing us to have the ability to maybe rent uh, ground floor space, all of those accessibility elements that really have our federal buildings contribute in a rich way to the community around them is the entire opportunity set that we have. On that energy front, that was you sort of answered my next question, because going back to the Ford administration, I guess it was when we had the first oil shock, there has been this drive to reduce the energy consumption per square foot or per building or whatever the case may be. It sounds like there's still room to go then in squeezing out the energy footprint 
because it seems every administration, it doesn't seem, every administration has come in and set lower bars. And there's still room for more improvement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, honestly, across the in, the buildings industry is a recognition of the contribution that buildings make to greenhouse gases. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of focus uh, on energy consumption, um, but there's also a lot of water that buildings use. So, you know, water reduction, um, there's a lot of waste that gets produced by the people who are inside of buildings. And so, you know, how do you construct a building so that, um, you know, you can recycle, you can um, compost, you can do all these types of things that will really minimize um, land, you know, uh, uh, waste that goes to landfills, for example. But And without making I it think, seem like you're working in a barnyard. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then now, of course, uh, with this administration's focus on electric vehicles as well, because, you know, automobiles are a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions uh, in addition to buildings. So not only are we trying to uh, absolutely reduce or eliminate, if possible, greenhouse gas um, production as a result of running buildings and powering buildings. But also now, how do we implement uh, EV infrastructure into our buildings so that we can encourage more and more people to be driving electric vehicles? And I want to get back to a point that you mentioned earlier, and that is accessibility to the public. I mean, I'm frankly old enough to remember when you could walk into the Commerce Department building, to name one, and say hi to the, if there was a guard, and just walk down to the cafeteria and have lunch, which was in those days cooked by a federal employee, not by a contractor, but that's a long time ago. Today, they are very fortress-like and not particularly welcoming, and often there is not a whole lot of space devoted to the huge security and waiting around requirements that are just there because of the times we live in. Is that something specifically that you're looking at to try to make them more welcoming, consistent with the security needs of people coming to visit federal agencies? Yeah, I think there's a couple different ways to answer this question. I mean, first and foremost, we do have to assure the security of the building and the security of the employees within the building. So that's not going to change. I think that the accessibility of buildings um, that I was referencing is both accessibility for people of all abilities uh, to walk and um, you know, just access the buildings from a physical access perspective. Uh, but but the other points to your point about having buildings be welcoming, that's absolutely something that is that can be handled through different design solutions. People might not realize it, but there are a lot of federally owned buildings that actually are customer facing. And I'll use the Social Security Administration as an example. I mean, they are a customer serving, a public serving facility. So um, you know, how do we design it, uh, th- their facilities so that um, they can really uh, handle appointments now, if that's what they're going to be doing, or large volumes of people. I mean, just making that a much more friendly experience. GSA also manages a whole number of daycare centers, for example, and those are publicly facing. And how do we make uh, that that frontage available so that, again, it feels um, a little bit more inviting as opposed to you know, kind of the impression that you are left with. Um, And then, as you mentioned, the cafeteria, I think that where there are uh, large buildings with, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of uh, federal employees within it, um, how do you make that food service area maybe more of a retail type of destination where both employees and the public can use? So you can designate spaces uh, so that they, again, make the building um, feel much more accessible. 
uh, but also bring our federal uh, employees closer to the communities that they serve. And before we close, maybe review some of your experience at WMATA, at the Washington Area Metro Authority, because so many federal employees interact with it daily, and as do millions of other citizens and visitors to D.C. Tell us about that experience. Well, uh, my time at Metro was uh, one of the highlights of my career. Uh, I got to work with um, a fantastic leadership team. Um, And at the time that I was there, and even to this day, uh, the people at Metro are just 100% committed to this Washington region, making sure that the trains run on time, um, and that uh, what uh, is sort of a national exemplar of high-quality transit services maintained. And so uh, it was a great experience. Um, Some of the things that I really learned and look forward to bringing forward into my new job is, uh, again, we've talked a little bit about this, and you could probably hear it in our interview today, is how important public real estate is in terms of what it can do to achieve other community goals. And so at Metro, I spent a lot of time working with local communities, making sure that their economic development objectives, their local hiring and business um, contracting objectives were met. We can do that, and we do do that uh, at GSA. And so I'm looking to make sure that, again, not only the federal population is served, but that the communities that all of our facilities are located in also get a benefit from our being there. Um, So that is something that I bring forward. And honestly, real estate's fun, and right now could not be a more exciting time uh, to be leading the federal public building service. And and, um, I, I loved my time at Metro. And I feel incredibly uh, honored to be able to join the Biden administration uh, and lead the federal portfolio. Nina Albert is commissioner of the Federal Building Service at the General Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. And thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm 
I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with 
uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.